let's turn our eyes to the Lord Jesus in prayer. Lord Jesus, we come to you in our hearts and with our minds, asking for your help as we look at your word. Pray that we would learn from what you have for us today. God, if there's any applications in this passage to our lives that I haven't thought about or haven't written down to share, I just ask that your spirit would press them on our hearts. And what I have said, I pray that it would be clear and helpful. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, if you have your Bibles with you or one in front of you under your chair, I would encourage you this morning to open it to the book of Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, in the New Testament. We're going to be in Acts chapter 8, verses 4 to 25. And um, just as an introduction, we're going to be looking at the story of a man named Philip, who we learned about in Acts 6. So in Acts 6, seven men are introduced who are to be in charge of the ministry of food in the church, taking care of widows, feeding them every day. And in the book of Acts, we, the, the, these, these seven men, right, we learn that the first two guys' names are Stephen and Philip. And then after this little story about how they're chosen, we turn the page and the next story in the book of Acts is about Stephen, the first one in the list. And then Stephen is martyred for his faith, and we turn the page, and the next story is about Philip, the second guy in the list. All right, so see how this is organized very carefully by Luke. And so this is the story about Philip. Acts 8, 4 to 25. Those who had been scattered by the persecution that was breaking out after Stephen's stoning, those who had been scattered from Jerusalem, they preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the gospel there. He preached to them Christ. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what Philip said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. What a title, huh? Imagine if you had a t-shirt, right? So met somebody wearing a t-shirt that said, The great power of God. <laughs> like, well, who's that? That's me. Whoa. Full of himself he is not, right? Um, well, he was boasting about this, and he's called the great power of God. Uh, verse 11, they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But then, when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. He knew real power when he saw it. 
And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you've said may happen to me. We'll look at this later, but notice that. That should be startling to you. Not... Oh, Lord, forgive me. No, just pray that bad things don't happen. Pray that I escape the consequences. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many of the Samaritan villages. So, our story is a story that revolves this morning around the, the interactions of basically four different individuals. These four men are... Philip, Simon, and Peter and John. And we're going to see four things this morning from this story. First, we're going to look at Philip's ministry. His ministry is marked, and you can follow along in the outline that I wrote on the back of the bulletin. If you flip the bulletin over, there's a detailed outline. All right? So four things. Philip's ministry is marked by gospel preaching and the Spirit's power. Then we're going to look at Simon's power. There's a man in Samaria who has dark magic. He's a sorcerer, a wicked man, and he supposedly turns his life over to Jesus. Third, we'll look at Peter and John's authority. Fourth, we'll look at Simon's bondage. Even though Simon has made a profession of faith and been baptized... He, time tells a different story about the true condition of his heart, okay? He's in bondage to sin. He's in desperate need of repentance. So again, four things. Philip's ministry, Simon's power, Peter and John's authority, and Simon's bondage. So first, Philip's ministry. You might remember this, but Philip was one of the seven men, right? We talked about that earlier, chosen by the apostles to take care of the widows, And now that he was safely out of Jerusalem after the persecution broke out, after Stephen's murdered, he goes to Samaria, to the region of Samaria, and begins to tell people about Jesus. He preached the good news, the gospel. That was the content of Philip's preaching. In, in Acts 21, we looked at this at our sermon discussion time a few minutes ago. In Acts 21, verses 8 to 9, we learn that Philip was called an evangelist. That's the word gospel, evangel. That he was a gospelist. 
he gospelized people. And he's got four young daughters who aren't married, and they're prophets in the early church. Acts 21, 8 to 9. Now, um, in verse 5, we see that Stephen, in chapter 8, verse 5, uh, Stephen is proclaiming the Messiah in Samaria. That's a good translation by the NIV. He, he preached the Christ is another way of saying it. Literally, the word for proclaim there is the word <coughs> preach. He's preaching the Messiah. He's preaching the Christ. The word Messiah is a word from the Old Testament meaning God's anointed king. And he was supposed to come from the tribe of Judah, from the line of King David. And now Stephen is telling these Samaritans that the rightful king, the Messiah, the son of David, has come. Now, here's what you need to know about the Samaritans, right? We'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more. They're partly Jewish. So we're going we're gonna to tackle that in a few minutes. But the Samaritans are partly Jewish. So he's saying, the king of David, your king, your Messiah, he's come. His name's Jesus. He died and rose again for your sins. He offers you pardon. Follow him. Verse 12, we see there again the good news that Philip is proclaiming. His news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Those phrases are closely connected, right? To say Jesus is the Christ is to say he's God's anointed king. And that the kingdom, proclaiming the kingdom, is proclaiming the king. The king has come. His rule has come. His reign is advancing. Repent and believe the good news. So gospel preaching, good news. God has shown up into this broken world. He hasn't left us alone. He's come as king through Jesus. That's what Philip's ministry is all about. That's what he's preaching over and over and over. And then he also has the Spirit's power at work marking his ministry. See that in verse 6? With shrieks, evil spirits were leaving people. And Philip was even healing people who were paralyzed and lame. So the good news of the king is accompanied by clear evidence of the power of the king. You want this to be your king, Samaria, because when he shows up, Satan abandons ship. People are healed. You want this king. So, Jesus is pushing back the darkness through the preaching and ministry of Stephen. Verse 13, Philip is, what he's doing is summarized in 13 as signs and miracles. The word, the NIV translates miracles here, it's the Greek word for powers. Signs and powers. Does anybody have a translation that says that? Powers? If you're looking at your Bible, I'm just curious. That's what it says, which is what a miracle is. A miracle is not a bad translation. A miracle is a power from outside this world that breaks into this world. It does something totally supernatural and unexplainable by the laws of this natural world. So that's what's happening through the ministry of Philip. And now look at the results. What happens? The result are that the Samaritans, verse 6, pay attention to him. He won over 
the crowds. And men and women both believed in Philip's message. They believed and immediately they are baptized. In the book of Acts, and we'll see this again and again, baptism is the first sign, the outward sign of a life that's being dedicated to following Jesus. If you claim to believe in Jesus, it's the next step. We'll see this in the next story. Uh, the Ethiopian eunuch gets saved, and he's like, where's water? Right? So, you don't say, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's take five years to make sure we're sure about this. Or let's take ten years to make sure that you're really a Christian. No. They even don't sign him. But we'll find out there's something deep and dark at the core of his heart. They're responding to the gospel. They're being baptized. And verse 8, look at this. There's great joy. Great joy in the city of Samaria when people are hearing and experiencing the good news and the power of King Jesus. That's what the gospel does. When, when the gospel, when the good news truly clicks in someone's mind and heart, there's joy. There's gladness. No matter what's going on in their life, there's an unshakable joy that Jesus is king and it's going to be okay. And now let's look at the next piece to the story, Simon's power. Philip's not the only character at work in Samaria. Before Philip rolls into town announcing the good news about a new king, performing great and powerful signs, there's a man named Simon who'd been the chief authority of all things spiritual in the city. Simon was a sorcerer one who practiced magic, and he wasn't a weakling either, no. He channeled real power through his sorcery. And he had amazed the people of the city of Samaria and the regions around it for a long time with his ability to do miraculous things. We are not told what those things are. And now is not the time for a long lesson in ancient magical practices and dark arts. I don't happen to be an expert in that field. You probably would want to be nervous if I was an expert, right? <laughs> I know everything there is to know about magic and dark arts. No, but I do know the Bible views these practices as real. For example, the magicians of Egypt that oppose Moses, and as ultimately flowing from the power of spiritual beings who are in rebellion against the Creator God. We're talking about demons and ultimately the devil. That's what the people of Israel. The leaders of Israel said about Jesus, when Jesus rolls into town doing miracles that were helping people, and they're like, well, he's doing that by the power of Satan. And Jesus is like, that does not make sense. Why would I drive out demons with Satan's power? <laughs> Why would Satan cut his own feet off? Like, that, that makes no sense, says Jesus. Okay? Satan loves death. Why would I raise the dead? So, so Simon is, whatever he's doing, there's some miracles that are going on that are dark, they're magic, but they're amazing, these people. And he's literally called the great power of God. Now, this was all happening in the city of Samaria. So I, I mentioned earlier, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Samaria. Okay, um, in Samaria, the Jewish God of the Old Testament that we read about, Yahweh, he was worshipped, but the Samaritans are what the Jews of Jesus' day 
they would call them like heretics, right? They were descendants of the 10 northern tribes of Israel that had been scattered all over the ancient world after the capital city, Samaria, fell to the Assyrian armies. And that happened 721 <coughs> years, give or, give or take, before Jesus was even born. So for 721 years before Jesus, these scattered tribes had been defeated by the Assyrian armies. You can read all about this in the book of Kings in the Old Testament. They had rebelled against the king of David, David's son, um, well, his grandson, Rehoboam, um, who was also a bad dude. But anyways, uh, I don't have time to get into a history lesson of the book of Kings. But just know there was 12 tribes and two remained faithful to the Davidic kings. Whether those kings were faithful to the Lord or not, they still stayed faithful to Jerusalem. And ten just got scattered, and, and they intermarried with the nations, and they maintained a little bit of their Jewishness. Like, they had something called the Samaritan Pentateuch, which is their own translation of the first five books of the Old Testament. We still have it today, the Samaritan Pentateuch. It's got a lot of similarities. It's got a lot of differences. They, they corrupted it. And um, anyhow, they did not worship at the temple. They included a lot of mishmash from all the pagan religions around, and they did not stay true to Moses, to the law. And they also tolerated a lot of religious practices that were forbidden, like magic and sorcery. So, in Samaria, this powerful magician had gained a massive following. He's the great power of God. These people who should, should have been... Um, traveling up to the temple and devoting themselves to Yahweh, the one true God of Israel, and waiting expectantly for the Messiah to come from the line of David, they were devoting themselves to this guy. And he regularly amazed the crowds with his performances, and he wasn't afraid to boast about it. Everyone loves a good show, and Simon was good at putting on a show. But then Philip rolled into town, and the spirit of Jesus totally steals the show away from Simon. <laughs> it's like, imagine, uh, you know, you're, you're uh, I'm trying to think, like, you have a uh, traveling circus, right? And you, you have this little, little show that you drive around, you've got like three trucks or something. And like, you're going to put in, you're going to do your little circus thing in, in Veterans Park and you, you go all out and all of a sudden like this massive circus shows up in town on the same day. And like no one comes to your little dinky. You have an elephant, they've got ten. You know, that type of thing. And and so this is kind of like imagine how Simon feels, right? He this is his his crowd, his people, he's been the guy for who knows how long. And all of a sudden Philip shows up and does undeniable things that are amazing. Stephen's never, or Simon's never seen this before. But, and so Simon joins in believing. He's like, I, I believe that. I can't deny that. He believes. Now, we'll look, we talked a few weeks about, about the nature of saving faith. It's not enough to just say, I believe. Do you trust 
Where is your allegiance? Where is your heart? And we'll see that. But Simon believes and gets baptized along with everyone else. But we'll see soon the power of darkness still has Simon in its clutches. But first, let's look at Peter and John now and their authority. As word gets out to the twelve apostles in Jerusalem that Samaria has accepted the word of God, which is the preaching about the Jewish king, Jesus. Samaria has accepted their king. The, the son of David, Jesus, is his reign, his rule as king is expanding now out of Jerusalem into Samaria. We talked about this in Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria now. And then it's going to go global to the ends of the earth. That's the whole book of Acts. The reign of Jesus advancing as king from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Alright? And so here's the next step in Acts 8. The turning point, it goes to Samaria. And the apostles come down to check it out. Peter and John go down there. Here we'll see that the apostles, they're providing oversight for the global advance of the good news about Jesus. They are the ones who had seen the Lord Jesus face to face. They're the ones entrusted with the task of guiding the early communities of Jesus and keeping them on track. This theme is going to show up again and again in Acts. A big one is Acts 15 with the Jerusalem Council. But here in these verses, we're going to see something really unique happen. Something that is not normative for how things usually happen in the book of Acts. What happens is the apostles arrive and they find that although these Samaritans have believed in Jesus, and although they've been baptized into the name of Jesus, they're already Christians, in other words, at least in name. They have not received the Holy Spirit. So... The apostles lay their hands on them, and the Spirit comes upon them. Now, some of you may be aware of this, but there are actually whole doctrines about the Christian life and its relationship to the Holy Spirit, how a Christian relates to the Holy Spirit. There's whole doctrines that have actually been built upon this passage. In other words, this passage has become like a, a glasses a template for people to look through to see how the, the Spirit of God shows up in the believer's life. Um, so the theological systems that talk, talk about this, they talk about the Spirit's role and the life of the believer in terms of like a second blessing that a Christian doesn't automatically receive when they trust in Christ. So the thinking goes like this. First, you trust Jesus, but then, that's great, but you must receive a baptism of the Spirit at some point after to enable you to live a fully empowered, fully surrendered, fully activated, fully victorious Christian life. There's a lot of languages, there are a lot of ways of describing it. And there's various traditions, I'm not going to just throw one under the bus or anything, but um, there, there's, there's different ways of taking this, but that two-step... Um, idea is what holds them together. Some traditions will argue that this second blessing comes with the gift of tongues. 
or even that this second blessing of the Spirit is the gift of tongues. So there's two, two categories of Christians in that way of thinking. Those who have received the second blessing and those that haven't. And so if you want the second blessing, okay, you need somebody to lay their hands on you often or pray over you, um, or you need to pray for it. There's different ways of talking about it. But this passage, with these traditions, these ways of thinking about this passage, they see this as a paradigm for how the Spirit always comes upon believers in the Lord Jesus as a second experience after conversion. You understand that? And, and so... Um, I actually don't think that that's correct. I think it's actually not what this chapter is trying to show us. What Acts, Acts 8 is actually showing us something that's not normal. And there's a, there's a reason. Acts, um, it's normative in Acts for believers to trust in Christ and experience the power of the Spirit in their life immediately at the time of conversion. Sometimes this is evidenced in tongues in the book of Acts, but many other times it's not. For example, we'll see in chapter 9 of Acts, so some of this stuff we're, we're going to get to as we work through. But in chapter 9 of Acts, Ananias, who's not an apostle, lays his hands on Saul, who's been blinded by Jesus, and he prays for him to regain his sight and to receive the Holy Spirit. Saul, in the story in Acts 9, doesn't speak in tongues there. Although we know that um, he does from other scriptures. 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. But suddenly Saul, at the prayer of Ananias, is able to see again. He gets up and he's baptized. Did he receive the Spirit? The text doesn't say. But it's evident from everything that follows that he did. And, and this, I think, is what we ought to expect. To be a Christian is to have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. Listen to how Peter describes what's normal. Acts 2, 38. Peter replied, Repent to all these Jewish people. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Have you received the gift of the Holy Spirit? You repent and you be baptized. You turn to Jesus and the Spirit comes. Again and again, through the pages of the New Testament that follow, not just the book of Acts, we see that Christians are those with the Holy Spirit, with the gifts of the Spirit, with the fruit of the Spirit. If you don't have the fruit of the Spirit... <coughs> You're not a believer. The Spirit produces fruit. If you don't have love, you're not a believer. Love is the fruit of the Spirit, right? So this is a huge topic. We've talked through a lot of these things when we preached on 1 Corinthians 12 to, 13, 12 to 14 on spiritual gifts. Um, so we don't, we don't have time to go back and rehash all of that. But what I, what I want to say about this is that when this happens in Acts 8... That there's a, a separation between them trusting Jesus and then the Spirit comes later at the laying on of hands. That should come as a surprise. That's not normal. This scenario is meant to stand out. It shows up uh, for a reason. I think there's two good possibilities for why the Spirit comes on the Samaritans later. Because we're not explicitly told. First, this order of events makes it clear to the Samaritans that the Jewish apostles had spiritual authority over them. 
Many of the Samaritans who were baptized into Christ had probably lived their whole lives despising Jews in Jerusalem. But now the greatest gift imaginable, the gift of God's empowering presence, comes to them at the hands of Jewish 12 apostles, right? Two representatives of the apostles of the Lamb. It emphasizes their authority. Second, it ensures that the apostles are there to witness what happened and to report it back to the Jews in Jerusalem who may have been skeptical that Samaritans really? Could they really receive the Spirit? Could they really be accepted back into God's family? The apostles, having been there, having presided over this, can tell them, yes, they're fully in. They're fully a part of us. They've been welcomed back. We were there. We saw it. This same type of thing, this is why I think this is what's going on. This same type of thing happens in Acts chapter 10. Where we see that there are uncircumcised Gentiles who are a part of a Gentile guy, not a, not a Jew, even less a Jew than the Samaritans, right? They're part of Cornelius' family. And these Gentiles have the Spirit fall on them before they're even baptized. And before the apostles do any kind of hand touching. All of a sudden, boom, the Spirit falls on them. What is going on? This, and, and the text there in Acts 10, Acts 11, it's very clear why that happens. It's to show the early church and even the apostles that God accepted the Gentiles simply through faith in Jesus. They didn't have to become Jewish. So to sum things up, right? The normal experience in the book of Acts is you trust Christ and the Spirit comes. The times where there's a separation, there's a reason. The disciples in the beginning, waiting in Jerusalem for the coming of the Spirit, he hadn't come yet. He hadn't been sent. And then Jesus sends him to kick things off. He had to ascend to heaven first. That was the reason. He ascends and then he sends the Spirit. Then when it advances to the Samaritans, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria. That transition point, there's something key that happens. The Spirit comes in a unique way to show the apostles are part of this. And then, when you have the transition now in chapter 10 to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth, it's beginning to go that way, that at that critical juncture, you have another unique thing. Boom! The Spirit comes to convince the whole church, this is okay. These guys don't have to get circumcised. They don't have to move to Israel. They don't have to become Jewish and stop eating pork and keep all the food laws to become Clean vessels for the Spirit to dwell in. God's Spirit said, I'm making my home with them. And the apostles had to say, Oh, okay. Don't call unclean what the Lord called clean. And then they baptized them after they received the Spirit. There's a reason that the Spirit does this. So, one final thing now we're going to look at is Simon's bondage. This is some sobering stuff, guys. When, when Simon the sorcerer sees that the Holy Spirit comes at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offers them cash. He wants to buy the ability to pass the Spirit on 
to others. He wants to buy the gift of God. And Peter turns on him and rebukes him in some of the strongest language we see in Acts. And his words have this prophetic edge to them. He hits hard at what's going on in Simon's heart. Notice a few things. Notice Simon is obsessed with power. He used to be the great power of God in Samaria, but now he's a man without power. The Samaritans, they had seen the power of Jesus, and they didn't look at him anymore. So he feels what we would call disempowered, weak, without influence. He no longer even knows who he is, right? His identity has been yanked out from under him. He was the great power of God. He's just another Christian. So Simon follows Philip around in verse 13, amazed at what he's seeing. He follows him everywhere. Friends, it's a simple fact of our human nature that when we want to increase our own power, we begin to follow powerful, influential people. An aspiring politician who wants a future job in Washington, D.C., he's got to court those in the halls of power, following them around, looking for an opportunity to get a leg up. A pastor, this is where it gets really sobering, who is hungry for more power and more influence in the Christian world, needs to get Christians with more power and more influence than him to retweet his stuff on Twitter, to like and share his Facebook posts. It's called platform building. To share his blog articles, to recommend his books, maybe blurb them on the back. You don't, you don't ask no-name people to blurb the back of your book. This is a great book, awesome. My mom. No, no, you want a famous author to say, awesome book, you probably didn't read it, but you want, you want him to say it, and then he'll return the favor, and on and on it goes, he's jockeying for higher positions of power. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to recommend books, but, but it can be so subtle. Platform building. Somebody might try to get an internship under a powerful person in the Christian world, to try to get a meeting with them, a face-to-face, -face, a selfie at a conference, posted on Facebook. I had a picture with, I went to a school where there was a pastor that was a pretty famous, his name was John Piper, right? Imagine taking a picture with John Piper, and I don't have a selfie with him. Uh, that's my, yeah, claim of fame, right? <laughs> I've eaten in his house, no selfies. Uh, but, but imagine, I, here I am sitting on a couch eating pizza in Piper's house. What if I had like taken a picture, right? Posted it on Facebook, chilling with Piper. <laughs> Who does that? But you know what? We do that. That's our human, human heart. Do we want to look, oh, he's important. He's with somebody important. Stephen follows, or Philip is being followed around by Simon. Simon's stuck to him like glue. Following power. Following power. Looking for his leg up. This is so subtle because in the Christian world, a Christian leader can say, 
I'm not hungry for more power. I just want to do whatever I can to expand my influence in the church and in the world so that more people can hear about Jesus. I want a bigger building so more people can come. I want a bigger online ministry so more people can hear. And more, and that, that's not bad in and of itself. I'm not saying that's wrong. To want people to hear the good news of Jesus, to want to be a part of it. But here's what happens. Satan often loves to turn our quest for influence into the very thing that destroys our souls. So often those on a quest for power become islands cut off from anyone who would threaten their power. Solo pastors. At the top. Unapproachable. Surrounded by yes-men, all alone. And they often present an airbrushed version of themselves to the world because raw honesty and confession of sin would potentially result in a loss of power. So power is not evil in and of itself so long as we realize all power is ultimately a gift from God to be used to serve others and to empower others, not take from them. Satan's path to power leads to death, to life-taking, to sucking life from others to build your own power. I want to use you to build me up. Jesus' path to power leads to life-giving. The most powerful, needless, he had no needs, being in the universe, gave his life completely, emptying himself of all power on the cross so that we would be free given and accepted and empowered as weak humans with the very power that raised Jesus from the grave, the spirit of the living God. The path to gospel power as a Christian is to empty ourselves so that we can be filled with his strength. The path to resurrection life is death. Dying to ourselves and ultimately dying and being raised by Jesus. So now back to our story. Simon had been the most powerful man in all Samaria. From what we can tell, he was it. And now that someone with more power had showed up, he followed him around looking for his big break to come back into power. He's platform building. Oh, but then the real heavy hitters show up. I'll see you later, Philip. These dudes, they've got it. Peter and John, they lay their hands on people and the spirit comes. Can I be number 13? <laughs> I want this power, says Simon. So he pulls out his wallet and he tries to buy his way into power again with money. Money is a very popular way for humans to try to gain power and influence over other humans. Money is a form of power. Here's an example, a very sad example, from within our own tribe of evangelical Christians. A few years ago, uh, this is all over the news, maybe you saw it, but a pastor named Mark Driscoll, famous pastor in some circles, he wanted to make his book on marriage, called Real Marriage, a New York Times bestseller. 
He felt that his book was so good, even though it actually came out when it was filled with plagiarism, but he, he felt it was such a good book. It's going to help so many, so many people that he took $200,000 of his church's tithes and offerings, unbeknownst to anyone else in the church, because the way their system was set up, he could do whatever he wants with the money. And, and he bought his way with that money onto the New York Times bestseller list. So that now Real Marriage has that little verb, New York Times bestseller. You can buy them. There's companies that can help you do that. And he did. Because he wanted influence. But it's a dirty power grab, in my opinion. That's not what Simon was doing here. And that's what Simon was doing here. I mean, and Peter sees what's going on. Trying to buy your way back into power. He says, may your money perish with you. You thought you could buy the Holy Spirit? The gift of God? You have no share or part in the ministry of the apostles. He sees Simon's heart is bitter. His heart is vile. He wants the power and control again. He wants to amaze people again with his greatness. He wants people to look at him again and say, wow, there's a guy. Let's be like him. Peter urges him to repent, to give up control and turn to Jesus. And the question you may wonder is, does he? Does Simon turn? We don't know for sure. But I think that if he had, Luke might have said so. I really do. Luke loves to talk about conversion stories. He's got it in the next chapter. But what we see instead is Simon asks Peter to pray that nothing bad would happen to him because of his ridiculous request. Did he really get convicted about his sin? I, I, I don't think so. I think we have a strong indication he did not. You see, a key sign that someone isn't really repentant about their sin is that you see that they are immediately worried about the consequences of their sin. So a scandal comes out, and they immediately go into damage control mode. Someone's caught abusing their power, for example, and they immediately try to control the narrative being spread about them so that they can stay in control of it. They're not concerned about how wicked their heart truly was before God. They're not grieved at how their sin really hurt people and offended their creator. No, they only cry and try to avoid the consequences of their actions. That's Simon's response. Please pray that bad stuff doesn't happen to me. You see that? That's, that's his... Oh, he doesn't say... He doesn't even say oops. He just says, please pray that God doesn't hurt me because of what I did. Like the husband caught cheating and he says... Pray my wife doesn't leave me. Like the thief caught stealing who says, please pray I don't go to jail. Like a liar caught in his lie who prays, Lord, please don't people, don't let more people find out about this lie. Simon shows us the tragedy of what an unrepentant heart does when it's confronted by sin. Instead of pleading with the Lord, Lord, forgive me. 
Peter and John, I've got it all wrong. Please forgive me. I've sinned. I've acted like God's power is for sale. I've tried to get control of the power of God with my wallet. Instead of that, he tries to avoid the consequences of sin. And I just want to close <coughs> with this sobering warning. It's the default impulse of our heart to keep our treasured sins close and still avoid the consequences. God help us. There's nothing more disempowering. You lose power. There's nothing here this. There is nothing more disempowering than facing the consequences that we are not in control of. And there's nothing more empowering than to experience the power and the freedom of being loved and forgiven from our sins by our Savior, Jesus. That is the power of God for salvation. Our memory verse says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would help us to run from sin. May we not be like Simon. May we be like Christ. May we not be power takers, leeches, sucking from other people to try to get things we want from them. May we be givers, drawing strength from you to serve and love. And we may we be humble enough to let others help us in your strength and your power. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I pray that you would bless it to our hearts. In Jesus' name.